0: Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of ancient ritual. I'm Paul Bresson.
1: And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about chado, or the way of tea, which refers to the Japanese tea ceremony. Chado is one of the three classical Japanese arts of refinement, along with kodo, which is the appreciation of incense, and kado. Also known as Ikebana, which is flower arranging, which we talked about in episode ninety. There's a lot of does. Yeah, I was thinking Bushido.
0: There yeah. could be a way of anything. If you study hard enough. Exactly. Interesting.
1: And I was actually surprised at how much my research on the tea ceremony reminded me of the Ikebana episode. There are a lot of parallels there. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for one thing, they're both very old art forms, and they've been like refined. Over the centuries, you know. Imagine multiple generations of people just constantly working to make subtle improvements to a certain process, and eventually every little element is perfected. There's so many ancient Japanese arts where that happens, and it's just at an insanely high level now. And that's why when we talk about so many of these Japanese culture type things, you need to study for Like your entire life to master these
0: arts. Yeah, I know exactly what you were talking about. I was actually thinking that regarding painting recently. Like, eventually, artists just got so good at painting, like, they could do abstract, they could make it look almost exactly real, anything in between, that that's where we started getting this wild abstractionist stuff we have now because, like, well, we can do everything else. So, to like innovate, new art, I need to come up with something very different that no one's ever seen before. Mm -hmm.
1: I don't know. It feels like with these Japanese arts, it's not so much about innovation as it is like refinement. Like you're building on these old ideas and you're not fundamentally changing them. You're making them more precise
0: or I don't know what the word is exactly.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. Just the attention to detail. They're not
0: going for big changes. It's uh we have a very specific thing we want to do in mind and we're just going to try to do it as flawlessly as possible or as well as possible and just refine everything in. Yeah. It'd be like if you were trying to paint the most perfect picture that looked exactly like reality, you would just keep trying to refine it better and better and better and you would never move beyond that.
1: Yeah. The attention to detail is just Insane. Every little piece of the tea ceremony is choreographed from the way you set up and decorate the room that you're doing the ceremony in.
0: I love the w- how the clothing's involved so much.
1: Yeah. And all the little movements of how you handle your clothing. Like you have to, you know, grab your sleeve in a certain way so it doesn't touch the rim of your tea bowl and stuff. Yeah. Yep. Just amazing. I also thought it was interesting to hear about all the different schools. Like I was under the impression that the tea ceremony was kind of one thing, but there are a bunch of different schools that have their own different ways of doing things. So it's like, as the process is getting refined over the years, people refine them in different ways. And it was like, oh, I think that this type of movement is a little more efficient or more beautiful or whatever.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: And even within each school, the ceremony will vary depending on all sorts of factors, like the season, the time of day even, the level of formality, the setting, how many people are joining in the ceremony. There are just so many things to think about. So, you know, at first it might sound just unimaginable that people could spend centuries trying to refine this thing, but there are so many tiny details to think about that if you dedicate yourself to making it as perfect as possible. It's almost like that refinement
0: process never ends, you know? Yeah, definitely. It'll probably keep going. Yeah. And another thing about the tea ceremony is all of this is not just for making and drinking tea. Obviously that's part of it, but a big purpose of it is for the guests to enjoy the hospitality and atmosphere that the host is creating. And it's also a distinct separation between fast-paced life and the ceremony. The ceremony goes at the pace it's going to go at, the natural rhythm of having tea with somebody, and that's never going to change, no matter how fast life gets around it.
1: I love that about it. Like reading about the procedure of the whole ceremony, there's so many pieces of it that are designed specifically to put you in a certain frame of mind. Yeah. Where it's like you are separated from your normal daily life and you're in this special ethereal kind of like world of beauty or something.
0: Yeah. Another thing that stands out to me in that same line of thinking is like, even at the end, everybody stays there while the tools are washed and put away. So everything is exactly back to its place, ready to go for next time before anybody leaves, before anything's over. There's no like, ah, great party, we'll clean it up later, which has its time and place, but not in the tea ceremony. Yeah. So I think maybe the tea ceremony
1: that most people imagine, if they've heard about the tea ceremony or seen some part of it, A very formal tea event is called chaji, which I think, I don't know, that's kind of what I was imagining before I did my research. And I was surprised to learn that this type of formal tea event actually also includes a full kaiseki meal. Right. I was not aware of that myself. And the meal is followed by the tea. And there can even be two types of tea served. You got thick tea and then thin tea, which we'll talk more about later, but... The entire event, this whole super formal tea ceremony could take up to four hours. Yeah. Had no idea.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's like includes a whole meal, right? Multi-course meal. And they call it the tea ceremony. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because the tea really is the focus. Like that's the climax of this
1: whole experience. The meal is really just to prepare your stomach and like make sure you're satisfied and you feel good. And you're like in the perfect you're perfectly prepared to accept that tea the way it's supposed to be enjoyed, you know? Yeah. So there is a less formal version of the tea ceremony called Chakai, which is just a tea gathering. In this one, you might just serve the thin tea, have some confections to snack on, maybe a light meal, but it's much less involved in that whole four-hour thing.
0: Yeah, not everyone's doing the four-hour all the time. Yeah.
1: So before we move on, to talk about the history of the ceremony. I also want to mention that the tea ceremony deals exclusively with a type of tea called matcha. And if you're not entirely sure what matcha is or what makes it different from other types of Japanese tea, you might want to check out episode 33. We did that episode about Japanese tea in general. So we talked about all these different types of tea and what makes them different, and we covered matcha. In depth there. So we're not going to go into a ton of detail on that here. So just throwing that out there. It's not essential to understanding what we're going to talk about in this episode, but
0: if you're curious, episode 33. So we should mention a few notes about the history of the tea ceremony, I think. Mm -hmm. Where do you want to start with this? I want to start in China. (laughs) It all starts in China.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really where the roots of the tea ceremony lie because the tea ceremony comes from Zen Buddhism, and Zen Buddhism came to Japan from China.
0: Yes. There is a Chinese tea ceremony and a Korean tea ceremony. Yeah. But we're talking about Japanese tea ceremony today.
1: So, in the ninth century, there was a Chinese tea master, author, and Zen Buddhist named Liu Yu who wrote The Classic of Tea which talked about how to cultivate and prepare tea. Okay. Around the end of the 12th century, a Japanese monk named Eisai, who is the founder of the Rinzai school of Zen Buddhism. Maybe you've heard of him. We talked about him in the last episode, about Tofukuji. Uh, so Eisai returned to Japan from China and brought with him some tea seeds, as well as the method of tea preparation that is used in the tea ceremony which is basically the idea of matcha. Matcha is a type of tea where the leaves are ground super fine, and then you whisk that powder into water. So that's the idea that he brought over from China. So this powdered green tea was first used in religious rituals in Japan. It seems like what normally happens when monks brought over Things from China, they would become really special, religiously involved things in Japan. And then eventually they would make their way into the aristocracy and then down to the common people. Mm -hmm. So by the 13th century, tea had become sort of a status symbol among the samurai class. And this is where we start to see tea party type things, which would eventually evolve into the tea ceremony. So, Paul, what did
0: these samurai tea gatherings look like? They were, in some ways, almost the opposite of the current tea ceremony, in that it was all about uh, showing off. You know, it was about yeah. flaunting their knowledge of tea and how exquisite their tea bowls are. You know, it was a, it was all about flexing.
1: Yeah, they would have a contest where tea would be served, and then people had to guess which tea was the highest quality. And the tea considered to be the best quality came from those seeds that ASI had brought back. And uh, if you guessed right, at one of these parties, you could actually win prizes too. Ooh. Hand out like a PlayStation or ice cream maker <laughs> or something. <laughs> and eventually, as this idea developed, the rules changed a bit. So Later on, it wasn't so much about just identifying the highest quality tea, but you were supposed to be able to guess where each tea was from. So it was like a contest about who knew the most about tea, who was the most skilled connoisseur of tea. Okay. So between the 14th to 16th centuries, this was the Muromachi period. And this is when two important Zen temples were built in Kyoto Kinkakuji which is the golden pavilion, and Gin kakuji, which is the silver pavilion. And both of these were influential in developing what we now think of as traditional Japanese culture. They were really into ideas like wabi-sabi, which is the acceptance of impermanence and imperfection. They helped develop things like sumi-e painting, no theater, ikebana, the tea ceremony, all these things that we now think of as like quintessential traditional Japan. And one influential character around this time was named Murata Juko, who is considered by many to be the founder of the tea ceremony. Did you read much about him, Paul? No, I didn't. So in his youth, he saw these samurai parties where everybody was trying to identify the tea and showing off their tea knowledge but he was like, uh, not into that. So his study of tea actually led him to Kyoto, where he studied Zen Buddhism and flower arranging. And apparently there's even a record that says that he was employed at Kakuji, the silver pavilion. But that doesn't quite check out, if you look at the details. It's not corroborated anywhere else, and the timing doesn't quite line up. Okay. Anyway... <laughs> Either way, so he's known for developing a new style of tea ceremony. He didn't like the boisterous stuff that the samurai were doing. He wanted to come up with a more refined tea gathering sort of idea. So he was really into the tea utensils and the artistry behind the practice of enjoying tea. He also developed the four and a half tatami mat tea house, which we'll talk about bit later uh, and his style of tea ceremony that he came up with was known as wabi cha which is a more accessible and simpler type of gathering than what the aristocratic samurai class was doing okay so he was more into like rustic pottery and bamboo tools where the samurai were using like expensive silver or ivory tea wares yeah very
0: uh, counterculture
1: yeah so by the 16th century, by this point tea was available to all levels of society and the idea of the tea ceremony was further refined by people like Takeno Jō and Sen no Rikyu. So Sen no Rikyu, we talked about him in the tea episode because he was a really important guy when it comes to tea. Some people call him the founder of the tea ceremony. But then, like I said, some people say that Murata Juko guy was the founder and that Sen Norikyu just perfected it based on Murata Juko's ideas. Okay. Anyway, but he was really influential and he was able to spread the way of tea around the country because he was the tea master for Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who was a very important character in Japanese history, of course. He was one of the three great unifiers of Japan. Yep.
0: Hideyoshi used tea partly as a means of solidifying his own political power by trying to spread and influence the culture of the rest of the country and tie the whole country together.
1: I thought that was really interesting, this symbiotic relationship between tea and politics.
0: Yeah. Hideyoshi did some other things to spread tea ceremony, such as hosting the Grand Kitano Tea Ceremony in 1587 and constructing the Golden Tea Room. So he was uh, he was into tea, mm-hmm. or at least using it for his means.
1: Yeah, it seemed like he and Sen no Rikyu were pretty close for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what ended up happening there? Well, eventually, Toyotomi Hideyoshi started to feel threatened because tea culture... The way that Senorikyu was practicing it, it was based around ideas of rustic, simple aesthetics. They don't really jibe that well with ideas of being a rich warlord, I guess, you know? It's just kind of two different worlds. Yeah. So eventually, Hideyoshi executed one of Senorikyu's leading disciples, and then like a year later, he ordered Senorikyu himself to
0: commit ritual suicide. Oh, wow. That really escalated between those two quickly. Yeah. That's extreme, man.
1: <laughs> Toyotomi Hideyoshi was not known for being uh, subtle. Yeah,
0: what a way that is. Like, it's one thing to, like, command someone die, but to, like, make them do it themselves is a whole other thing. I don't know. That's, that's wild.
1: And if I recall correctly, Senoriki was, like, 70 years old. When he had to kill himself. Imagine seeing this old guy that you've known for like most of your adult life. You're like, man, we used to be close. But here, take this knife and slice your belly open.
0: Man, he he was 70. You couldn't just wait a couple more years to let nature take care of him for you? He was too much of a threat, Paul. (laughs) Wow. That's brutal. Yeah.
1: After Rikyu's death, though, the tea ceremony tradition carried on. And actually, three of his great-grandsons founded these three schools that are still around today, known as the San Senke, which means the three houses or three families. And these are the three main schools or styles of tea ceremony, because they can trace their lineage directly back to Senorikyu, that famous tea master. Yeah, wow. So since then, over time, branches and sub-schools have formed. So today, there are a bunch of schools of the tea ceremony that all do things a little bit differently, like we said. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to share a quote I found about the tea ceremony from a 1906 essay called The Book of Tea. Okay. I thought this was just a nice quote. It insulates purity and harmony, the mystery of mutual charity the romanticism of the social order. It is essentially a worship of the imperfect as it is a tender attempt to accomplish something possible in this impossible thing we know as life.
0: That's eloquent. I thought so too. So time to talk some more about the specifics of the tea ceremony. I suppose we should start with the setting. Where does this tea ceremony take place? That's important. Yeah. Traditionally, the tea ceremony venue is surrounded by a garden. Although in the modern world, that's not always possible. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be a very tranquil, calm place. I think that's why the garden setting.
1: Yeah. That's supposed to be part of what's transporting you to this other world, you know? And the room itself that the tea ceremony is going to be held in, these rooms are specifically designed for tea ceremonies. It's not just any random room in a house or something. These rooms are called chashitsu, which means tea room. And there's just so much to consider when you're decorating this room and designing the room. Like We could do an entire episode just about these rooms. So, typically, tea rooms have a very traditional style. You're going to see tatami mats on the floor, those sliding wooden doors. There will be a sunken hearth in the middle,
0: and a tokonoma. That would be the alcove where you can display a scroll or flowers.
1: Maybe you've selected a scroll that has a line from a certain poem that embodies the type of atmosphere you're trying to create. The room is also going to have separate
0: entrances for the host and for the guests. Yeah, one thing I thought was really interesting is that sometimes they purposely keep the entrances really low. So you have to come into the room bent over, symbolizing humility as you enter.
1: Yeah, I thought that was cool too. There's also going to be another attached area for the host to make preparations out of view of the guests. And the typical tea room isn't very big. Like I mentioned the four and a half tatami mat room. Mm-hmm. Tatami mats are about 1.8 meters by 0.9 meters. So the tea room would be a square with each side of that square around 2.7 meters long, which is a little under nine feet. But there's a lot of variation too. You could have smaller rooms. You could have bigger rooms. There could be additional rooms. Maybe you have a waiting area for guests. Maybe you have a welcoming area. There could be a storage room. Maybe you have some restrooms. Mm -hmm. By the way, if you want to learn more about tatami mats and shoji, which is those sliding doors, episode 32, we talked all about traditional architecture. Yep. So where are these rooms located, Paul? You said like you could have a standalone tea room that's in the middle of a garden, right? Yep. But you could have a tea room in a house. Sure. You have a
0: tea room pretty much anywhere.
1: Yeah. And if you visit Japanese gardens in Japan, it's actually pretty common to see little tea houses in those gardens. Like usually they're not accessible to the public or anything, but you can see them.
0: It's kind of interesting. Yeah. I've seen quite a few. For a while, I probably didn't know what they were.
1: Yeah. oh, There's just a little random building in the middle of this garden. Yeah. So Paul, if you're going to attend... A tea ceremony. If you've had the honor of being invited to a fancy tea ceremony, what are you going to wear? You don't want to make a fool of yourself
0: showing up in like a t shirt. <laughs> you want to dress nicely, but you don't want to be too flashy. You want modest clothes. You're going to remove jewelry that could possibly damage the tea equipment. And you definitely don't want strong perfume. Because you're going to be enjoying the aromas of the tea, and you can't ruin that with your smell.
1: Yeah, that would be bad. So the traditional clothing, of course, is the kimono. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the elements of the tea ceremony, like the specific procedures, actually developed specifically around the kimono. Yeah. Because there are specific movements you need to do to keep your sleeves from getting dirty or... There are parts where you like smooth out the wrinkles in your fabric as you're sitting down or something. There are even parts of the tea ceremony that can't be performed without a kimono because you need to be able to tuck things into your obi, which is that big belt kind of thing around your midsection.
0: Yeah. Or have a fan up your sleeve of your kimono that you pull out at some moments. That's pretty cool that they've really worked the clothing even into everything. Yeah, so many little details. And the way you do the movements, this hand is holding the sleeve of your kimono back from uh, dipping in the water and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It would look weird not wearing a kimono. Your hand's just right there. (laughs) You don't know what to do with your hand. Yeah. So most
1: tea ceremonies are still conducted in kimono these days, but... Western clothes are, of course, the standard in Japan now. And they've kind of made their way into the tea ceremony too. You could wear formal Western clothing instead of a kimono is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, you could stick tools in your belt rather than in the belt of a kimono and make it work. But like you mentioned, Paul,
1: you want to steer away from anything flashy. So even with the colors of your kimono or your suit, you want more neutral subdued colors. Maybe like more natural colors, you know, like earth tones, perhaps.
0: Yeah, definitely. What about on your feet? Uh, you're going to want to put on special socks that will be given to you generally while you're preparing for the tea ceremony. Yeah, these are those
1: divided toe socks called tabi, where you've got your big toe separated from the rest of your toes. Mm-hmm. So here's a random thought I had when I was doing my research. Those tabby kind of remind me of like Ninja Turtle feet. I can see that. You know? Yeah. In those movies, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they just have like two giant toes. <laughs> yeah. But that, like it's not a turtle thing. Real turtles have five toes. Interesting. So it occurred to me like, did they design those Ninja Turtles that way to make you think of ninjas that might be wearing those tabby style socks and
0: shoes. Oh, maybe. Anyway, just Uh a random thought. (laughs) I don't know.
1: (laughs) So when you're setting up for the tea ceremony, it's very important to consider the season. This can affect a lot of things like how you decorate the space, what you're going to wear, even the specific equipment that you will use to make the tea and the actions that you will perform.
0: Yeah, generally you have two main seasons, the cold season and the warm season. So in the cold season, you're going to be using the hearth and preparing your tea that way. And in the warmer season, you're going to be using a brazier to prepare the tea.
1: Yeah, like a little contained metal thing that you can make the fire in instead of having it in the floor, kind of heating the whole room.
0: Yeah, you don't need to start a whole fire in the middle of summer. Mm -hmm.
1: So there might be a hanging scroll in the tokonoma, as we mentioned. So perhaps you choose a scroll with a character on it that harmonizes with the season. Like in the summer, maybe you choose one that says kaze, which means wind. Or in the winter, perhaps you have a scroll with a painting of a winter scene. Or maybe you have a flower arrangement instead of the scroll. You could use seasonal flowers and materials to put that together. Check out episode 90 for more about flower arranging. Your clothing could change too, right, Paul?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You'd be wearing lighter clothing in the summer months.
1: In winter, you might have a lined kimono. And the colors could change with the season two. Mm-hmm. I saw that you're even going to use shallower tea bowls in the summer because they allow the tea to cool more quickly. And then in the winter, they use deeper bowls that retain heat longer. That's smart. Yeah. They thought of everything. <laughs> so let's talk about the equipment that you are going to be using in this ceremony a little bit. Sure. The equipment and tools used for this ceremony are collectively known as gu. First, you need a bowl to whisk your tea in. It's called a chawan. I
0: thought it was very interesting that the bowls are frequently named by their creators or owners. Yeah. That shows, I think, the level of respect that they have for them, that they're worth having a name. Yeah. I
1: mean, that's kind of arguably the most important part. You know, you need something to drink tea out of,
0: or you're not going to be having tea. Yeah. Another interesting note is that irregularities and imperfections are prized. They're often featured prominently in what's considered the front of the bowl, which is the side that'll be displayed towards you when you're served your tea. Yeah.
1: There are even different styles of bowls for different types of tea. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to talk about the thick versus thin tea. You're going to have different types
0: of bowls for each one of those. So you're going to have a tea caddy, which is a small lidded container in which your powdered tea is placed for use in the tea making. Then you'll need a scoop to move the matcha
1: from the tea caddy into the bowl, and that's called a chashaku. They're normally made from a single piece of bamboo, and you you might expect it to look kind of like a spoon, but it really doesn't. It's more like a little stick, and the end of the stick kind of curves up a little bit, so it's really more of a scoop than a spoon. And they're really narrow. Paul, have you, I've made you matcha, right? Yeah. I have one of those. You know what I'm talking about? There? Yeah. And you can see like the little bamboo node in the middle where the sections of the bamboo join. Yeah. I don't know. They're cool looking little utensils, like very natural and rustic, you know? Yeah. Speaking of natural and rustic, you're also going to have the tea whisk, which is called a cha sen, And this is really important because that's what you're going to use to mix the matcha powder into the water. And these also look really cool. They are also made from a single piece of bamboo. So like the handle that you're holding on to is one end of a section of the bamboo. And then the other end, the bamboo has been sliced super, super thin and then bent out. And like opened up into this whisk kind of shape. It's really pretty cool looking.
0: Yeah. That's another thing that I thought was really cool and that I spent a lot of time thinking about. Like, how do you turn one piece of bamboo into that? Yeah. It's pretty cool how they do that.
1: Yeah. Oh, we did a whole episode about bamboo. There's so many things you can make out of bamboo. Yeah. They, they came up with some really creative ideas for using bamboo. Yeah. What else do you need, Paul?
0: Uh, you've got a chakin, which is a small rectangular linen or hemp cloth, mainly used to wipe the tea bowl.
1: Yeah, it's like a little tea towel. Yeah, there's also another cloth called the fukusa, which is made of silk. Ooh, and fancy! Th- yeah, this one's used for the ritual cleansing of the tea scoop and tea caddy. I think you also use it to like take the lid off of the brazier where the where the water is being heated. Okay. And I saw a video of somebody using that and it's just beautiful. Not only the cloth itself but the way that they use the cloth, like all the little movements of how to perfectly fold the cloth. Just every little movement. I can't stress enough like how crazy it is that every movement you make is prescribed. Like it is a part of the process that you need to be able to do perfectly.
0: It's like tea ceremony origami kind of
1: yeah
0: it'd be cool if you at the tea ceremony and all of a sudden uh, the host like folds a napkin into a swan <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I haven't heard of a school where that's part of it but
1: that would be interesting you can <laughs> yeah. start a school and make that yeah. part of your process Paul <laughs> so let's talk about this thick and thin tea that we've been hinting at Yeah, right?
0: Like, what is thick tea? Turns out, you just have a much higher powdered tea to water ratio, and you get thicker tea. It's also like very dark green, too, in the color.
1: Yeah, and you have to use the very highest quality tea to make the thick tea, which, by the way, is called koicha. So drinking this thick tea, that's really the main event of The tea ceremony, like the most formal one. You're gonna get served this thick tea. And if you've had matcha before, you've probably only had usucha, which is the thin tea, which is where you just whisk some of that matcha into water, much less of the matcha than the thick tea. And then it gets nice and frothy and bright green. It looks completely different than the thick tea. And I'm sure it tastes very different too. I've never tried the thick tea. I'm not sure I've even had high enough quality tea to make it possible to make that stuff the way it's supposed to be
0: made. It'd be really interesting to try. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that you can't even like whip it up the way you do with the other tea. You have to like slowly knead it with the whisk until it's worked into the tea.
1: Yeah. I remember reading that it's like the texture of honey. It's so thick. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. I want to try it. So like I said, that thick tea is only for the most formal tea ceremonies, but I saw that most tea ceremonies these days actually only involve the thin tea
0: still. Mm. Okay. And the thick tea was usually prepared in one bowl and then shared from that bowl where everyone would get a sip and then everyone got their own thin tea. Right.
1: Um, I also want to mention one other little thing here there's also a less common version of the ceremony that doesn't even use matcha at all they make sencha which is a different type of tea where they use whole leaves instead of the powder so there's almost like a different i mean it's an entirely different category of tea ceremony called sencha do, the way of sencha yeah Well, Paul, are we ready to walk through the whole process, beginning to end? Yeah, let's do it. The four-hour process. Yeah. So, like we said, the ceremony varies depending on the school, the season, the time of day. But this process we're going to describe, let's say that this is happening at noon, which is the standard time for this type of thing to start. And then we have one host, up to five guests, and it's cool weather. Okay, And we have a tea house built specifically for our tea ceremony. And this is going to be that super, super formal one that could you know be four hours. Like I said, four hours.
0: Okay. Okay. So the guests are going to arrive. Whoa, whoa,
1: whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. How are they going to know when this is happening?
0: You said it started at noon.
1: <laughs> yeah, but how do they know that? Someone told them. The host sends out formal invitations. Okay. With the time. You don't just mention, oh, hey, I'm having a tea ceremony. You should come by. No, it's like, this is a big
0: deal. Okay. Very formal. I like it. And uh, noon doesn't mean noon, though. It's like uh, coaches used to tell me, if you're not early, you're late. You need to be ready to go at noon. So you got to show up a little bit early to get settled in and prepared. But not too early. Oh, that'd be rude. You don't want to put pressure on the host. Yeah. So, how early would you arrive,
1: Jason? I didn't see an exact like number of minutes you're supposed to show up in advance. Five minutes. Okay. I don't,
0: I don't. That's my guess. I'd go with like fifteen. Fifteen. I feel like fifteen. I'm not really putting pressure on them because it might take fifteen minutes for everyone to like get the socks on and get settled in, and it you gotta. Enjoy the room for a little bit and like enjoy your surroundings. You might be in a garden. like. Well, I'm thinking that's the stuff that starts at noon. Maybe. Well, go ask a tea
1: master exactly which minute to show up.
0: All right. If we ever go to a tea ceremony together, let's do 10 minutes. Okay. We'll split Split it. Split the difference. Yeah. Yeah. But then we'll ask the tea master. Just being real, uh, how early should you show up? For real. For real. Yeah. (laughs) So you show up. What do you do first, Paul? Um, You're going to go to the waiting room if they have one. And you're going to store your unneeded items, such as coats. And you're going to put on a fresh pair of tabi socks. Mm -hmm.
1: So this waiting room is going to be decorated in a similar style to the tea room itself. You're going to see those tatami mats. You're going to have a decorated tokonoma, that alcove, the scroll, or flowers. So I'm thinking this is is like what's happening right before noon. You know, you want to give enough time that you can get in there, take off your coat, put on the socks. And then at noon, you're like in the waiting room, looking around, admiring the room. Sure. That's what I'm going to say.
0: Sure. Okay. I mean, that depends on, on how fast your group moves. Some groups might take 15 minutes to get settled in. Maybe. Some might only take five. Sure. I'm sure you could do it in five. <laughs>
1: Maybe. Maybe. So at noon, exactly, I'm thinking that's when the host, or maybe even a helper of the host, is going to serve the guests some kombu tea, or roasted barley tea, or sakura tea, or maybe even just some hot water to drink while they're waiting.
0: Yeah. When I first read that, I thought, oh, it's interesting. They're (laughs) serving them tea at the tea ceremony before the tea ceremony, but then... I learned it was four hours long, and I was like, okay, yeah, people need to drink something in four hours. You could be
1: drinking three different types of tea through this whole event. Yeah. So once all the guests have arrived, they're going to go to the outdoor waiting bench Mm -hmm. in the roji, which is that garden, the tea garden. And the host will have set up a nice little place for them to admire the garden and cleanse their mind and body while the host prepares everything inside the tea room. Mm -hmm. And again, walking through that garden from the waiting room to the waiting area in the garden is supposed to make you feel like you're being transported from the mundane world into this almost sacred space. So when the host is ready, they're going to come out and walk over to the guests. And are they going to say anything, Paul? Uh, Are they going to say, hey, come on in? Everything's ready for you guys. No. It's not formal enough, right? (laughs) Not nearly. So the host comes out, and the host and the guests will silently bow to each other. You don't say a word. Everything is just understood. And then the guests will go to a tsukubai, which is a water basin, and they will ritually purify themselves by washing their hands and rinsing their mouths exactly the same way you would if you're entering a temple. Or a shrine. Talked about that before on the podcast. hmm And I really like this idea that there's, there's no speaking. Because I don't like talking to people. It's no, all about I'm the mood. <laughs> yeah. It goes back to the underlying philosophy of the whole ceremony. You're supposed to be enjoying the sounds of nature. And I think that speaking as little as possible kind of reinforces this idea that you're you're in a sacred space, like special things are happening. You don't just say whatever you feel like saying. You need to preserve the sanctity of this event. And that pretty much holds true for like most of the ceremony. There are specific times when you can say certain things, but most of it you're just supposed to be enjoying existing and taking in what's happening
0: around you. So after... Washing and cleaning. They're going to remove their footwear and enter the tea room through a small crawling-in door (laughs) in Nijiriguchi and proceed to view the items placed in the Tokonoma and any tea equipment in the room as well. So you Mm got to get in there and enjoy taking your surroundings. Read the scroll Admire the flowers if there are some.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And then you're going to take a seat Seiza style
0: on the tatami. What is Seiza style? That's uh, the traditional kneeling style. Not like Jason kneeling. (laughs) My family came up with this style, Paul. (laughs) You ever look up where where your name came from
1: or what it means? I feel like I have. It's not a common name. There aren't many kneelings around. I don't remember. I don't think I could find anything specific about what it means.
0: Yeah. I don't think I've ever met any other kneelings
1: (laughs) than your family. Bresson's a pretty uncommon name too, isn't it? Correct.
0: Correct. Very few Bressons out there, at least in this country. Mm. I'm not even sure if it's Swedish or Danish. Mm. I, I don't know. Like, I've seen some videos on YouTube, like, where'd your last name come from? But they're all like the common, like English and German stuff, you know? Yeah. Anyways, (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> where were you we, sitting down? You're Talking sitting about, down, Cesar style.
1: Yeah, kneeling, kneeling style, oh, kneeling style, <laughs> kneeling family kneeling style. <laughs> style. So you're you're kneeling with like your knees pointed straight ahead of you, and you're sitting on your feet basically.
0: And it's important who's sitting where too, right? Because mm-hmm. the most dignified guest is going to get the position of honor.
1: Yeah, I saw that that person would be the
0: most experienced person with the tea ceremony or
1: the most aged
0: person yeah traditionally probably like the oldest man today maybe just the oldest person so i thought about this too so if i went with you you're like six months older than me you get the position of dignity heck yes and, and at first i was like what but then as this goes on i'm, I'm kind of happy it's that way which so will, I get a lot of duties. Yeah, you have to do things. You have to be on your cues. I just get to sit there and watch. Yeah, that's true. So I'm, now I'm happy about it.
1: So guest number one, that guest of honor, or whatever <laughs> you want to call him, <laughs> that's uh, called the shokyaku. Paul, can you sit like that, Seiza style?
0: Uh, for five minutes, yes. Yeah,
1: it, for, for longer so, than that, not really. It's kind of uncomfortable. I've found if I just randomly try to get into it, it's like stretching so many parts of my legs. It's super uncomfortable. Mm. But, you know, I do yoga weekly and at the end of a yoga session, then I'm loose enough that I can actually sit comfortably like that. Really?
0: Yeah. For me, my legs are fine. It's just my ankles, Mm. like right on my ankles. I really start feeling it because I just never bend them that way, I guess. Yeah. So I'd be in trouble right away. You know, I've seen there's,
1: This little thing that I saw on uh, Begin Japanology with Peter Barrican, he had one of these. It's like this little tiny wooden thing that folds up real small, but you can unfold it into just this little itty bitty seat that goes under your butt. So you're not resting (laughs) directly on your feet; it just raises you up. I need that. Yeah, I
0: need that.
1: It'd be cool to have.
0: Okay, that's good to know that those exist.
1: So once everyone is in the room, everybody's sitting down, uh, the last guest that comes in is going to close the door loudly enough that the host can hear it, because they're like signaling to the host, hey, we're all in here, we're all ready, because the host is going to be in their prep area, right? Yep. So then what does the host do?
0: Well, they're going to come in and welcome each guest, and then they're going to answer questions posed by Jason. As the most important guest. Guest number one. You're going to have to ask thoughtful, specific questions.
1: Yeah. I'm going to ask about the garden. I'm going to ask about the scroll. Maybe what made you choose such a beautiful and poignant scroll? Tell me about the character. Tell me the calligraphist that made the scroll.
0: Yeah. I found it interesting that it matters a lot who made the scroll, not just because how it looks, because the purity of thought behind it also matters. So if it's like a really, if it's the right person, it adds clout to it because they were a, a high ranking monk or whatever. The exact rankings go on that. I'm not entirely sure. It's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh, so since it's cooler weather, like we said, there's going to be that charcoal fire in the middle of the room to heat the water. And the host is going to get that fire going at this point. Cause we want to heat up the room and then they're going to serve a meal to the guests before we get to the tea. And I saw that at this point, the host might also burn some incense.
0: So tell us about this meal, Paul. So it's going to be several courses. It's accompanied by sake. So you get more, more drinks. Mm-hmm. And there's always going to be a small sweet called a wagashi.
1: That goes at the end of the meal. It's like a little dessert almost.
0: Yeah, and the sweets I think, helps prepare your palate for the teas that come later.
1: Yeah, supposed to make the tea more enjoyable when you have a little sweet before it. Uh, I have some details about this kaiseki meal, because, you know, I've been aware of kaiseki, I've had a bunch of kaiseki meals, but I had never really looked into specific details about it. So, kaiseki-style meals, this is a very traditional meal, and... They're popular around Japan. You'll see them in, like, especially traditional areas. Kyoto is going to have a lot of restaurants that serve kaiseki. Mm -hmm. But I was surprised to learn that this style of meal actually originated from the tea ceremony. Like, this is the original place that that style of meal was served. And it's a meal that's supposed to make the matcha more enjoyable because you don't want to drink super strong matcha, that thick tea. On an empty stomach, because when you're mixing in a ton of ground up tea leaves into the water, I mean, that's like the most caffeinated drink you could consume, really. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know about, (laughs) well, I do know about you, Paul. You and I, I think both can get an upset stomach from too much caffeine, right? Sure. Uh, I also learned something interesting about the origin of the word kaiseki. Yeah. So back in the day, Zen monks only got one meal a day early in the morning. So by the end of the day, they would get really hungry and they might get really cold in the colder months. And so what they would do is they would take these hot stones, like they would heat up stones with fire, and then they would put those stones in their clothes to stay warm and stave off hunger. Wow. And that's where Kai Seki got its name because Kai means the inside of one's clothes and Seki means stone. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) That is funny.
0: So in Japanese, you're basically like if you're inviting someone to really formal dinner, like you're you're asking them like, do you want to go stone inside of clothes? (laughs) Yeah, here's a stone in your clothes meal. (laughs) Yeah, it's a
1: simple meal that's supposed to ward off hunger and warm you up. Okay.
0: Yeah. Man, I'd be pounding that one meal. More rice, please. More rice, please. So what
1: happens after you get that wagashi, your little sweet, at the end of the meal? Um,
0: After the meal, there's a break uh, called the nakadachi. And the guests are going to return to the waiting area until summoned back by the host again. And the host is going to use the break to do things like sweep the tea room. They might take down the wall scroll and replace it with a flower arrangement Or they could open shutters in the tea room to get more light in. And they also make the preparations to get ready to make and serve the tea. Yep. And then when the host
1: is ready, they're going to have a bell or a gong that they ring in a certain way to signal to the guests that they're ready to serve the tea. And the guests are again going to purify themselves at that water basin. And then they're going to enter the tea room again and admire the new decorations you know they're gonna look oh the scroll isn't there anymore now we got these beautiful flowers to admire Mm -hmm. and then the host shows up and now we're getting to the climax let's have some super amazing super thick super caffeinated matcha
0: (laughs) so when the host enters again they're gonna ritually cleanse each utensil including the tea bowls and all the other tools they're going to use in the presence of the guests.
1: Right. So like you said, this is a ritual process. This isn't just, oh, you just wipe it down. This is one of those things where every little movement, the way that you clean each of these utensils is laid out in like the rules of the tea ceremony. And I mean, they're already clean, you know. It's not like they're dirty and now you're actually cleaning them. You've already cleaned them. This is just... Part of that ritual to show your guests how much you respect them and show your hospitality by cleaning stuff in front of them.
0: Yeah.
1: Now the host will prepare the thick tea, the koicha. Lots of matcha, a little bit of water, kneading it together with that whisk, and then it will be served. And again, no one speaks during the serving of the thick tea Everyone's going to focus on the sounds of the tea preparation. And then the host offers the tea to the first guest as they both bow to each other. The first guest then bows to the second guest. So I'm going to accept the tea, look over at Paul, bow over to him. And then I will raise the bowl as a show of respect to the host. And then, this is a very important point, I'm going to rotate the bowl so that I'm not drinking from the very front of the bowl. And I'll take a sip. I will compliment the host. Man, that is some delicious tea. And then I will wipe the rim of the bowl clean and pass it over to Paul, the second guest, making sure that when I pass it over, the front of the bowl
0: is facing Paul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to repeat the same procedure. If there's another guest, I will do the bowing to them and passing the bowl along when I'm done. And eventually when the last guest has had it, the bowl is returned to the host.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is another point right at the end of where everybody's gotten their tea. Now I have a few more lines to say as the first guest. Pressure. Yeah. And I'm going to ask the host about the brand of the matcha where it was manufactured. I'm going to ask about that sweet that we enjoyed at the end of the meal. And then all of us guests will get a chance to admire the bowl before it's given back to the host who then cleans all the equipment and leaves the room. Coming and going. Yep. So that's the end of the most formal part of the ceremony, which is the serving of the thick tea. And the host is going to signal the end of this formal part by stoking the fire and adding more charcoal. That's a signal that things are getting more relaxed and casual now. So now, maybe we're in the mood to smoke a little bit, right, Paul? Yeah, they're going to bring out their uh,
0: smoking set,
1: the Tabakobon. Yep, they might bring out some more Wagashi, little treats to go along with the thin tea that's going to get served next. Mm -hmm. They might bring in some cushions for people to sit on, too. It can make themselves a little more comfortable. They wouldn't be using cushions when the thick tea is being served because of that super formal atmosphere. Everything needs to be done in a specific way. You don't get cushions.
0: Yeah. And now it's more open to casual conversation. Everybody can talk, not just the ritual between the first guest and the host anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. They might burn some incense, more incense at this point as well. Yeah. So I want to reiterate Coming up is where the thin tea is going to be served. And most tea ceremonies these days are just going to be this part. Yeah. So as Paul mentioned earlier, this thin tea is going to be served to each person in their own bowl. Everybody gets their own bowl. And once everyone has had their tea, the host is again going to clean the utensils they used. But before they put those utensils away, that first guest, me, Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask the host, if we can take a look at those, like, man, those are some nice utensils.
0: You mind if I uh, get my grubby hands on those for a little bit? Yep. You take a look and you pass it down the line and I take a look and I pass it down the line and we all get to see the cool stuff they're using. And you want to handle these with the utmost care.
1: Absolutely. And this is another show of respect and gratitude to the host. There's so many parts of this that's all about, you know, the host demonstrating their hospitality and the guests demonstrating their gratitude.
0: Yeah. And some of these items might be antiques. They might be have been in the family for a long time. So it is very important to be very careful with them. Definitely.
1: So after everyone has taken a look at the utensils, the host is going to collect their tools, and then the guests leave, bowing to the host, who will be bowing back to them from the door.
0: And the gathering is over.
1: And you go back to your normal, boring, mundane life. You're exiting the sacred world of the tea ceremony. You step
0: outside, pull out your cell phone, you got eight missed calls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Got to start thinking about work on Monday. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) So we mentioned that there are a bunch of different schools that have different approaches to this tea ceremony. And people study the tea ceremony in all sorts of different settings. There are tea circles, which are just like groups of people that are real into the tea ceremony, and they get together and practice it. There are dedicated tea ceremony schools that you can enroll at. Mm -hmm. Younger people might join clubs at their school to study it, like just in your normal high school or junior high school. Yeah, join the tea club. Uh, There are also classes at community centers or even private residences. And I thought this was interesting. Apparently, students are often divided into groups based on age and sex. Yeah. There might be separate classes for women and men or for younger students and older students. I wonder
0: why that is, really. kind of makes sense to me. Like, it's, you know, they do, like, workout classes sometimes like that, too. And it could be the timing, too, where you've got, like, stay-at-home parents might be able to come in at 11 a.m. and do a class Where you might do 8 a.m. for seniors, or you might do after school hours if it's kids. But why have limits on
1: it? I mean, it makes sense to me if it's about like the level of experience, you know, the more you get into the tea ceremony, the
0: more details you might examine in your lessons. Um, I get what you're saying, Um, but I'd say partly for the comfort of the people. It might be easier with more people similar to them around to learn something new or enjoy the class. And how you teach it, you'd probably teach tea ceremony differently to middle school kids than you would to retired people. Sure. I get what you're saying. Just go for a hard level system. How experienced are you? Yeah. You join the beginner's class. Yeah. So if you are a beginner, you know, you got to start at the
1: basics which is really basic. Like you're learning how to properly open and close doors. You're learning how to walk gracefully in your kimono. You're learning how to enter and exit the tea room, how to bow properly.
0: I'd struggle. I, I feel like I'm a little heavy footed. I just feel like they'd be like, you're not Paul, you're not walking. Right. <laughs> There's just so much
1: like it's, you know, it reminds me of, like, being a sushi chef. You know, you start out for five years just, like, toasting the seaweed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With <laughs> the tea ceremony, you got you to gotta learn to walk. And you can't master it for five years. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how long you stay at that phase, but, I don't know, the basics are really basic. And I'm sure they're really strict about, like, you don't move on until you get this right. Yeah. So, as you progress, then you'll start to learn about... You know, how to clean the equipment, all the little movements, what to say. You'll probably learn the role of the guest long before you get to the role of the host. Sure. And then once you learn all the basics, because even, even that stuff, you're, we're still talking pretty, pretty basic. You get to start to practice the whole ceremony, starting with the very simplest style of ceremony. And one thing I thought was super interesting about learning the ceremony is that you're not supposed to take notes. Interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. Learn by repetition. Yep. you're supposed okay. to imprint those motions on your brain. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not much of a note person, anyways. Me either. I feel like if I stopped to take notes, I'd learn it less well in that moment.
1: I 100% agree. Like in school, I never really understood how people took notes because if I'm like listening to something and then I look down at my paper and write all that down, then I look up and I just missed a bunch of stuff while I was yeah. writing.
0: Maybe that's why people that took a lot of notes sometimes struggled. Like, I would generally take no notes and like then do well on the tests. And some people would be like, "What? Yeah, what?" And I mean, like I just listened. You know, like the teacher said everything that was on the test later. So yeah, I have a really random
1: memory from high school where I was sitting in math class, and I'm just sitting there staring at the teacher, listening to him explain mm-hmm. something. And the girl behind me like tapped me on the shoulder and was like, "Are you not taking any notes?" And I'm like, "No." I never take notes. She's like, what? How do you, what? I'm like, I
0: don't know. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to experience tea ceremony in Japan today, you can. There are a lot of options, fortunately. You could have a Japanese friend that does it as a hobby. You could. But there's other ways too. What interesting I found is that some hotels offer the experience, so you might be able to even book it through your hotel. That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of traditional gardens, like the gardens that have those tea rooms, mm-hmm. they sometimes host tea ceremonies.
1: Yeah, gotta look on their website for those special events. And
0: get yourself invited. Hmm.
1: Did you see anything about the Tokyo Grand Tea Ceremony Festival? No. That's held in mid to late October. I saw that it's perfect for beginners and foreigners because a lot of the presentations are done in English.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: They have lessons and demonstrations showcasing different techniques. And it looks like you could attend a ceremony for only 300 yen.
0: Nice.
1: I think, though, for that one, you only get to observe. You don't get to participate. Okay. Or, you know, it might be one of those things... I saw that there are certain tea ceremonies that happen at certain events where there can be like hundreds of people that actually participate. Like it's, it's obviously not going to be that formal four-hour thing. Yeah.
0: But it's a massive tea ceremony. That's something that happens. I saw this massive tea ceremony that was all little kids, maybe like five years old or something, where they were like learning how to make tea. Mm. And they all got to serve it to like one of their grandparents. So it was all these old people getting served tea by these little kids. It was really cute. I think i all, all the grandparents were like, oh, it's so good. And, you know, spoiling the little kids. Yeah. And the
1: kids are like on the floor, just hunched over their little bowls, whipping it furiously yeah. as hard as they can.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it was great.
1: Uh, if you want a more intensive one-on-one experience, I saw that you could go to the Yannisen Tourist Information and Cultural Center, which is also in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. They have beginner friendly hour long sessions that are a bit more expensive. These ones are 5,800 yen if you're on your own or if you bring more
0: people, it's 48.50 per person. Okay. I mean, also, if you want anything tea or in Japan, Uji is definitely a place to go. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they got lots of tea ceremony down there.
1: Yeah, that's right by Kyoto. I mean, both, that whole area yeah. really is a lot of tea around. For sure,
0: I'm sure you're going to, that's going to be like a mecca of tea ceremony. Yeah.
1: Uh, there's a kimono rental shop I saw in Asakusa called Nadeshko, where you can like rent a full kimono and perform a tea ceremony for around 5,000 yen. Okay. That would be cool. Yeah. Uh, there are even events hosted by Maiko or Geisha. If you want a geisha experience, you could kill two birds with one stone. Uh, We talked all about geisha and maiko in episode 12. If you want to know more about them. And if you want to learn more about the tea ceremony from the comfort of your own home, I will recommend japanese-tea-ceremony.net. Did you come across that website in your research?
0: Yeah, they had a ton of stuff.
1: Yeah. Like a lot of places that I saw in my research kind of have an overview. But that website, it seemed like they had sections that went in-depth on every little aspect. Yeah. And they have a bunch of book recommendations, too, if you really want to get into it. Well, that's all I got, Paul. Same here. What surprised you most
0: about the tea ceremony, would you say? I mean, maybe the four hours part. Yeah. I just didn't know that meal was involved. Hour, two hours wouldn't have surprised me because I knew it wasn't a fast-paced thing. But yeah, the fact that the meal was involved and that it was that long. Yeah, the meal was a
1: big surprise to me too. And that that was the origin of Kaiseki. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, well, where can people uh, find us online, Jason? Well, you could go to our website, com. Got a lot of good pictures there. You can find all of our episodes. You could donate to the podcast there if if you feel like doing that. You could send us a message. And if you're planning on going to Japan at some point, you could check out our travel tools section where we have some nice resources.
0: Yeah, some very useful stuff there. Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're finally going to be tackling Kyoto. We saved it for episode one hundred. The ancient capital. So much culture there.
1: Yeah. I feel like that episode could get very long. There's so much. Yeah, we'll in Kyoto. have to
0: We'll have to try to overview it. Yeah. Like, I mean, we just did a whole episode about We've done a few episodes about temples in Kyoto that were whole episodes. Yeah, you know? we've already
1: talked about specific temples for like
0: three hours. And there's still like a bunch more famous ones that we haven't done. Yeah. So we'll see how that turns out. It'll be fun
1: though. We both, well, we were in Kyoto together and I visited once without you and yes. you've been there without me. Yep. So there's a lot to talk about. We've been all over that city. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. See you next time.